continue our worship this morning as we open God's Word by continuing our look at Ecclesiastes with this whole series on searching for meaning. And since it's Father's Day, I decided to introduce my message today by speaking for just a moment about the importance in terms of the future as well as the significance of this day, Father's Day. A uh, January 2013 Washington Post article. There we go. Titled, Did Your Absentee Father Make You an Atheist? It was written by Kimberly Watson. And in her article, she cites what was once a very popular book titled Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. It was written by a psychologist by the name of Paul Vitz. And in the book, it illustrates that there is a link between atheism and shoddy fathering. In fact, Vitz points out that intense atheists throughout history, Nietzsche, Voltaire, (coughs) Madeline Murray O'Hare, had absent or rotten fathers. And this, he argues, damaged their ability to form a loving and healthy relationship with the Heavenly Father. Vitz also demonstrates how notable believers... Renaissance man, Blaise Pascal. Anti-slavery activist, William Wilberforce. Nazi martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, among many others, had great relationships with their dads and were therefore able to build relationships with God. And his book and his study do not surprise me because of repeated experiences of which I am aware. I ran into the same correlation when I was teaching elementary school in Louisville, Kentucky. I was teaching at an inner city school that had the highest rate of children on free or reduced lunches. Poverty. And Out of one class that I had of middlers, fourth grade class, a class of 28, I only had two children in a class of 28 that were being raised by both their biological father and mother. 26 of them either had an absent father or absent parents being raised by grandparents. And in fact, one of the two parents, groups of parents, dad and mom, that were there when we had our beginning of the year open house, showed up at 9 o'clock in the morning for the open house, fairly well intoxicated already. The students with absentee fathers exhibited increased levels and significant behavioral problems. And this past week, we saw hands lifted and stories told by high school students who shared with the others in their group or with an adult on a one-to-one basis 
that they did not have a loving father like that portrayed in the story of the prodigal son. And every single one with an absentee father or an abusive father described with one word during Paul's mention when he just had them pop out, popcorn out, a word that described their father. Every one of those with an absentee or abusive father gave a word that indicated in some way how their fathers had in fact bothered them. Again, the problem was evident in an experience of my friend, Joe Garman. Joe started a prison ministry called the Re- American Rehabilitation Ministries, ARM, back in 1973. He did it at the formal re- uh, former Revival Fires building, which is right across the street from Ozark Christian College there in Joplin, Missouri. He never dreamed that that ministry would mushroom into an international operation with several paid employees now and over a hundred volunteers. Several years ago, Joe got together with the executives of a greeting card company deciding to do something special for Mother's Day. They set up a table in a federal prison inviting inmates to send a free gift card uh, to their mom for Mother's Day. The lines were so long that they had to call out and get additional supplies in in order that everyone who wanted could have a card to send to their mother. They decided it was such a success that they were going to do it again on Father's Day. Not one prisoner showed up to send a card to his father for Father's Day. And in fact, when they were asked about it, many of the prisoners said they had no idea who their fathers even were. Now, I want you to to see the scope of this. Joe Garman is obviously a Christian minister in a Christian ministry. But the book was not. And... There's another study that was published by the Minnesota Psychological Association not related to church in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Listen to just the high points of their study. It was noted that a family structure and that family structure and the lack of parental involvement were both predictors of juvenile delinquency that the more opportunities a child has to interact with his or her biological father, the less likely they are to commit a crime or to have contact with the juvenile justice system. In a study of female inmates, more than half came from father-absent homes. Youths who never had a father living with them have the highest incarceration rates. While youths in father-only households display no difference from the general rate of incarceration population-wide. And I commend you. Children coming from two-parent households have the best opportunity for success. Additionally, children who come from father-absent homes are at a greater risk 
of using illicit drugs, substances, and at, at a younger age, as well as the odds of them associating with peers who also struggle with delinquency issues. I cannot stress strongly enough the significance, the importance of fatherhood in terms of the future of our country, the future of your children and grandchildren, especially as it relates to the development of their understanding of God, our Heavenly Father. <coughs> the passage that's before us today leads in a very natural manner from the text that we examined last week. It continues the writer's observation regarding the meaninglessness of materialism. The obsession that our culture has with things. And this sixth chapter of Ecclesiastes has been described as a self-portrait painted in words by Solomon himself. And as we've already noted, Solomon makes use of three significant phrases, memorable phrases, describing the parameters of his study as well as the conclusions that he reached in his search for meaning and purpose in life. Under the sun, it occurs 35 times in this short book. His view, his search has to do with life apart from God. What it's like when you don't have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Vanity, used 25 times. Grasping for the wind, another seven. And all three of those phrases occur in our text for today. Solomon is writing from the perspective of a man, a father, a father who has pursued happiness and fulfillment, but he's done it apart from God. And it's certainly a description of many men in our society today. Unfortunately, there are so many today who are bent on having things and providing things for their children that they fail to give their families the time not just quality time. That's often the defense that gives raised. I don't give them a lot of time, but the time I do give them is quality time. No. There also needs to be a significant quantity of time. And it's something for which the children are longing. When I was teaching elementary school, I had kids literally wanting to come to my classroom at the end of the day seeking me out, wanting my approval. And I sat down and I talked with my principal and a couple of the other staff who were there. And we came to the agreement. I, first of all, voicing it. I honestly, I don't think it was anything to do with who I am and how I am and how I relate. I think the number one reason why those elementary kids were attracted to me was that I was the only male teacher in the elementary school. And I was a positive role model, which most of them lacked in their lives. And I was a man who would give them attention that was not abusive. Our kids need us. 
And these kids in this community need us. We can be a father figure for many of them if we'll just offer our time and open ourselves to that opportunity. So the bottom line is that spiritually, those fathers are providing a model for a distant an absent understanding of God. Let me tell you a little bit about my personal struggle. I knew my dad loved me. But my dad was gone a lot. And my dad was a strict disciplinarian. And I remember several times hearing my mother say, you wait until your father gets home. And I would have longed to have heard that thinking that he was going to come home and great positive things were going to happen. But when she said that phrase, I knew that when he came home, it was going to mean harshness and discipline. And it took a paper in graduate school Four years of undergraduate college studying ministry. Two years of graduate school in Southern Baptist Seminary. Before I agreed to an assignment that had to do with anger at God. It was one of the topics and nobody was taking it. And the professor looked at me and he said, Chauncey, why don't you do this one? He didn't know I had issues with my father. And as I researched that topic, I came to the conclusion that I had significant issues of anger at God because I saw God as someone who loved me but who was distant. And that the only time there was interaction in my life was when I felt guilty for something that I had done wrong and that somehow God was punishing me. But I never felt that much. Just what my father had portrayed to me about what a father is. And I remember many years after that when I was teaching elementary school thinking, how do these young guys ever have a chance of understanding that God is our loving Heavenly Father when the only Father they have is one that's absent and abusive? That's why I tried as an elementary school teacher to be a loving Father figure in all that I did. We're going to look today at how Solomon begins chapter 6 with two principles. And then how he illustrates and develops them. And finally, how he puts them into perspective. And so, first, the two principles. Verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. 
And yet God does not or has not given him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It's a grievous evil. The first principle. The first principle to help us to secure a godly future in our homes and hopefully in our society is that somehow we need to begin to understand and communicate that God is the provider of all good things. We can see this in Solomon's own experience. He had not sought wealth, but he had asked God only for wisdom and understanding. And yet God had made him the richest man in his generation. In fact, in Proverbs 8, he acknowledges this, linking his righteousness and his riches together. And again, in Proverbs 22, he recognized the source. He says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. But somewhere, somewhere down the line, he had gotten this, he had forgotten this, and he had gotten off track. In fact, I think in his own writings you'll see the evidence of what happened. He married a woman who worshipped an unknown, non-existent pagan god. And in that marriage relationship, his own relationship with God began to be hindered. But notice that we're not told why he cannot enjoy them. The Jewish Targum. The Jewish, Jewish Targum are oral paraphrases or interpretations of the Hebrew Old Testament. I went to see how the Jews might understand their own scriptures in this regard. And the Jewish Targum on this passage puts the blame on man. Here's what it says. But the Lord has not given him power on account of sin to enjoy it. It may well be the case that sin or sickness prevents this particular man from enjoying his wealth. But it wouldn't justify the preacher's emphasis on the sovereignty of God in the matter. Yet God does not give him power. Verse 2. So who is responsible for this man's calamity? Himself? God? Or maybe both? I love the book of Job. And yet in the book of Job, the problem is actually compounded. Job is a wealthy man who loses everything. And in their day and age, to have meant that you were being blessed by God to not have meant that God was not blessing you in your life. He's a wealthy man that loses everything. And it's clear that Satan, the adversary, is the perpetrator. And the Chaldeans are the earthly agents involved. And yet Job attributes it without complaint to the sovereign will of God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. By the way, that verse is what's on the tombstone 
of my infant brother's grave. That's what my mom and dad wanted there. How can these three, God, Satan, Chaldeans, or even Job, four I guess, how can these three causes in any way be reconciled? One of the writers during the Reformation said, the Lord designs to exercise the patience of His servant by adversary. Satan's plan is to drive him to despair while the Chaldeans are bent on making unlawful gain by plunder. There is no inconsistency in attributing the same act to God, Satan, and man. While from the difference in the end and mode of action, the spotless righteousness of God shines forth at the same time that the iniquity of Satan and man is manifested in its depravity. God ultimately restores Job. Job is ultimately restored. But the Chaldeans, Satan, the adversaries are all punished. The man under the sun mentality, looking at life just from an earthly perspective, cannot see this. And therefore, unlike Job, mankind is often driven to despair by the plight that we're in. Cannot find an earthly reason for, for pain and suffering. And certainly cannot see a heavenly one. I think it's clear from what the text says that we read. It's that a man cannot truly enjoy the gifts without the giver. And so the principles are illustrated. Enjoyment is a gift from God. Verses 3 to 9. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied when life's good things and he also has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered moreover it's not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he even though he should live a thousand years twice over Yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the fool man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight in the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The story is told of when the former Chancellor of Germany, Conrad Ardenur, was an old man. He had had a physical exam. And the doctor told him, I'm sorry, sir, but I cannot make you any younger. 
You see, Adonair had a reputation that even though he was old, he didn't allow his age to slow him down or stop him. He kept going in a robust manner. And listen to his response. Adonair responded, Don't worry. Just help me get a bit older. Don't keep me and don't try to make me younger. Just help me get a bit older. We vainly try to fight back the advancing years. But time always defeats us. Some people have even resorted to, uh, I I think this is how you pronounce it, chirogenics. Having their bodies frozen immediately when they die, hoping that sometime later a cure will be found and they can be thawed out and cured and continue to live. It's that idea that we want to live on forever. And Solomon paints us a picture of this by using an illustration that would probably be familiar to his Hebrew readers. Because a large family and a long life were considered to be typical signs of God's favor. But abundant blessing without the God who gives the ability to rejoice in it, it draws the comparison of a a Methuselah, someone who lives hundreds and hundreds of years with a stillborn child. Both of them return to darkness. The child with no name. I shared with you how my sister had just married her twins as the Miller twins. And how after 50 years decided, no, my boys need a name. And went back back in 2018 and named them Timmy and Tommy. But that unborn child often goes even nameless. Not even glimpsing the sun. But Solomon says somehow he's better off than man because we get that tantalizing taste of the blessings, but we're really unable to enjoy And we end up mocking them. What Solomon is saying in verses 3 to 6 is that time doesn't wait for anyone. Warren Wearsby put it this way What good is it for me to add years to my life if I don't add life to my years? Think about it. And listen to me. You might have retired from a job, but there is no retirement from being a Christian. There is no retirement for being a Christian witness. There is no retirement from being a Christian minister for all of us, not just the one who's hired. We are all called to be ministers of Jesus Christ. And that's why in verses 7-9 to we get this very general reference to the pervasive lack of satisfaction with life. A, a, A dissatisfaction that encumbers, that troubles so many people. I would predict, Liz, that it's probably no different and has been no different during the last year and a half. That while many patients come into the emergency room because of illness, 
there's also still a significant number who are coming in because they are just distraught and depressed and can't handle life. Yeah? You see, both the rich man and the poor man are equal in this. They both are caught up in the endless cycle of toiling, laboring, working to produce food and the things that they think will provide satisfaction, vainly maintaining a body that will eventually reach its demise, either in collapse or death. And to make matters worse, even a person, even if a person was able to enjoy their work and their food, They still have to contend with a wandering imagination, Solomon says, that eventually will make them discontented. I've been there. I know you've been there, Ritz. Seeing that newer, fancier motorcycle that has a a few things that ours doesn't have. I'm, I'm that way when I see yours. And our imaginations start to wander, don't they? And we do. We start to think, man, if I just had that. If I just had that home. <laughs> My wife knows where I'm at with the home thing. And our, our imaginations don't agree. They don't come together. My idea of the home thing was actually not even a two-room. Well, I guess it was a two-room. It wasn't a three-room. My idea of the great future home is a two-room log cabin out in the middle of nowhere with all kinds of woods and trees around it. And the two rooms are the one room and the bathroom. She wants at least a three-room. She wants a bedroom, a bathroom, and the other room. We all live with that idea that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. The grass is greener in the other field. That's what Solomon is saying. He's saying our imaginations will wander and because of that we'll become discontented. So where do we go? It involves changing our perspective. Verses 10 and 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known to what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For man, while he lives the few days of his life, his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? In the marginal note of the Masoretic text of this passage, the oldest, one of the oldest manuscripts that we have, some rabbi has marked this section of verses as the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes and the turning point in the writer's thoughts. Tremper Longman in his commentary says, Koheleth, that is the preacher, here leaves his explicit search for meaning and in the second half of the book focuses on advice and commentary about the future. And he does it in two ways. First, 
He restates the belief in the absolute sovereignty of God. Basically what he's saying in verse 10 is that God has spoken. And yet man is good at naming things. Jordan and I talked about this one time when we were talking about some of her training to be an elementary teacher. One of the things that they stress and teach is that if you give a child a label, they will live up to that label. Whether it's the troublemaker, the well-behaved student, the helper, and that for every negative thing you say to a child, you better give seven positives or they're going to remember the negative, the criticism. We're good at naming things. We see that back in Genesis 2 when they named all of the animals. And you know what? We can even now give names to diseases. Although we're getting more and more prone to calling them syndromes. Because that allows us to admit that we really don't know what they are and how to to get a cure. But under the sun, from the perspective of life without God, there's nothing new. Even though, as one writer has put it, and I love this, the names have been changed to protect the ignorant. And yet the sovereign Word of God is creative and powerful. God spoke and brought everything into being. And it seems that verse 10 is also making at least an allusion to what we think of as God's foreknowledge. That Solomon is referring to the naming of man by God, echoing the words, for he knows that we are dust. God's foreknowledge is a tough one for me. I struggle with it because I believe that there is ample scriptural evidence that supports the fact that you and I have been created with freedom. And so I struggle with the idea of how to reconcile God knowing and not God causing. And I don't believe that God is micromanaging and causing every little thing to happen. I don't believe it's biblical. I don't believe it's scriptural. The hair on the back of my neck stands up when I hear people say, well, that person died because God needed another angel. What kind of an abusive God would that be? And secondly, we don't become angels anyway. That's not scriptural. And just think how hard it is for people who are not Christians When we say, well, God knows everything that's going to happen and He's in control of everything. What happened to those verses, three that come to my mind particularly, that point specifically to Satan as the ruler of this world? Jesus Himself said, the one who is the ruler of this world, the adversary, will be coming. But you see, there is some comfort in knowing, and I read it again this week, I just love the book of Revelation. 
The message of Revelation is, is that God writes the final chapter. So in verses 10 to 11, he raises the question Who are we to argue? Paul makes that same kind of a statement in, in, I, when he says, Oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? You see, the increase of knowledge, wealth, or status don't give us any kind of sovereignty. They just increase the vanity. In essence, it's all talk. That's why in verse 12, he basically states that the future is beyond man's knowledge and understanding. Were you forced to read 1984 by George Orwell? George Orwell writes, He who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. What's he saying? That we're really not in control. We can only do it by our words and by our force of hand. And that's why, in a feigned attempt to control the future, we've actually had presidents who have turned to astrologers and numerologists. We've had businessmen who have made business decisions on the turn of a target card, or however you pronounce that, Targo, T-A-R-G-O-T? Tarot. Tarot, okay. I don't even look at the stupid things. Ouija boards scare me to death. Because I believe there's power behind them. But it's demonic power. All trying to crack the code of what tomorrow's going to bring. And what vanity, declares Solomon. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And so let me conclude in this way. And this isn't just for the fathers here, but for all of us. There's a little book that I used to have on my shelf in my classroom called Follow the Leader. The reason I liked the book was because it really raised the question whether or not we really want to follow the leader depending on what the leader does. So here's my question. Is the life that you are living, present tense, what you're going to do today, what you're going to do tomorrow, what you're going to do this week, what you're going to say to people, how you're going to respond to people on the phone, what they're going to see in your behavior, are those things that you would want somebody who is watching you to imitate. To fall. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You again for this time to examine Your Word and to try to make application. Father, I thank You, Father, for being a loving and gracious and forgiving Heavenly Father. Help us to use that model of the prodigal son and the older brother to be a father who will run to greet the prodigal. Who will be a father who will go out to entreat the, the rebellious child. We pray this 
In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.